Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the privilege we have of being called into your service, and we pray, Lord, that you would bless our time now in this uh, final breakout session of the day, and Father, as well as the other breakout sessions and this evening's meeting, we look forward to it, and, and decisions that have made through, been made through this week, I pray for your blessing upon those as well as you're seeking to revive and revitalize your people. We ask and pray this all in the name of Jesus and for his sake, amen. You know, when they asked me to come and speak, I'll just be honest with you, it's interesting when, when you're asked to speak on different things and they give you a topic, and I don't know, this, this is the second time this has happened to me. I went to, in Michigan we have a men's conference, the Men of Faith, that they do every year, and they asked me to speak on leadership, which is just not what I would have chosen to speak on. And then when they asked me to come here, they asked me to speak on leadership, which it's, it's not that I'm, as, as you've, those of you who have been in here, I, I think this is vital. It's just that for too many of our people, it's not something that they see as vital. We'd rather hear something about some sensational uh, doctrinal controversy that's going on in the church than we would hear about the need to step up and be leaders. And uh, I, I, it, it's something that is not, as I mentioned, not just for the 18 to 29 generation, although I think that's key. I think we need more of the, the uh, college-age generation that's stepping up and taking leadership in our church. But by far, many people have just withdrawn to where we attend Sabbath services. For many Seventh-day Adventists, Sabbath-keeping has become a two-hour excursion, if two hours. Uh, I've mentioned already, Sabbath school gets cut out, and for many people, it's just, uh, you know, pop in the back door and pop out, and uh, that's not God's design for keeping the Sabbath holy. So we've talked about the importance of leadership, and uh, in our first seminar, we talked about how God has not called us just to be sheep, just to be followers, although we are to be followers, but we're also being in the process of, of being groomed as leaders in the cause of God, and we see that through Scripture. And then in our last session, we talked about the importance of attendance, and I cannot overemphasize that. You will never be enthused about something that you're not a part of. And a, a, a hit-and-miss attendance at anything in the church will not uh, connect you with the cause of God. Regularity in your attendance you know, and I mentioned to you, coming to, in the last session, you come to a prayer meeting, there's three people there, so you come, and it's just you and three other people, and it may feel awkward at first, and you may feel like there's nothing big going on here, but if you stick with that, and you come week after week, I'm going to tell you what, you're going to be blessed, even with those three people there, when you get past that initial mindset, but God's desire is so many more of his people would be there. How many of you are aware of the statements from the pen of Ellen White that says the prayer meeting is as the pulse is to the body? Have you ever read that? In other words, uh, let me rephrase that. The, the, what she says is the attendance at our prayer meetings is like the pulse is to the body. Now, if you have 150 members and you have three people attending prayer meeting, if you compare that to a pulse, that, that doesn't look real good, does it? Not at all. And that's not some little old lady that said that, that's the Lord who spoke that to his people to try to help us to realize that sometimes some of the things that we deem important are not the most important, and sometimes the things we deem as unimportant may be the most vital. And so anytime the church is moving forward with something, we should be a part of it. Um, 
maybe even more importantly than that, some people communicate this to me. I've talked about going, and I'm assuming that there's a positive church and a positive prayer meeting where it's uh, Adventist. Can I say that? The fact of the matter is, I've been to a number of our churches that they're not Adventist. They're Adventist, you know what I'm saying? But what they're teaching and things that go on are not what we believe is a world church. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about there. And so then people say, well, I, can't, I don't feel comfortable going. But listen to me. You're never going to change what needs to be changed in the church if you're not a part of the church. So a lot of people think, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to, this is what, this is what happens with a lot of independent ministries is they say, I'm just fed up with the church, it's so apostate, so I'm just going to leave. And they jump ship and they think they're going to have some kind of influence on the outside. That's not how it works. And so we just need to be a part of the work of God. Now this afternoon I want to talk about the, uh, some biblical principles of leadership. And I want to start out by delving into something in the whole great controversy scenario that plays into leadership as an overgeneralization. It actually plays into every one of our experiences in our spiritual lives. And uh, what I'm going to talk about this afternoon is something that if you can grasp what I'm sharing here, your spiritual life will, uh, will thrive if you grasp the principle here. Um, I want to start out by just talking about the, uh, the battle, the controversy, the war in heaven. And in fact, take your Bibles and go to the book of Revelation with me. We're going to Revelation 13. Revelation 13. We're going to the end of the chapter, verse 16, right toward the end. And we're going to read through chapter 14, not all the chapter, but just we're going to read through that chapter break. You understand that the original text did not have verses and chapter breaks, and and you'll see the significance of that as we read through from chapter 13, verse 16. Now we're talking about the, the... Antichrist power at the end of time and the false prophet, two-horned lamb-like beast at the end of time and the mark of the beast. And it says in verse 16, I want you to notice carefully, he causes all both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on their what? Right hand or on their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the beast, I'm sorry, the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his what? His father's name. And some of your translations may say something different there. Anybody? His name and his father's name, which is another manuscript reading of that, written on their foreheads. Now, I want you to notice what's happening here. You have the end of time scenario, okay? You have two groups. This is a, there's only two groups at the end of time. There's the faithful and the unfaithful. There's two churches, the true and the false. And so you have these two groups, and they're contrasted here. You come to the end of Revelation 13, and here's the group that's associated with the beast power. They get a mark on their forehead, or it says in the text there in 13 that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the what? 
name of the beast. Now tell me something, those of you who've done a little bit of study, you don't have to do really a whole lot in scripture to find out what name is significant of. When you read the word name, or when you read the, the, the name in the Bible, what's that indicating? Let me ask it this way, and this will jog your memory. Back in Exodus chapter 33 and 34, Moses asked God a question. He says, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord says, Moses, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. Anybody remember reading this passage? And I'm going to proclaim the name of the Lord. How many of you know what glory means when you're reading it in that? What is it? Character. And we know that because then when Moses says the word glory, but God doesn't say the word glory, God says the word goodness, right? Show me your glory, and he says, okay, I'll make my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim my name. And I want you to understand that the goodness, the glory, and the name are all synonymous, and they all are symbolic or, or, or have reference to character. In Bible times, names meant something, right? When you name somebody something, they would say, you know, because uh, the Lord has done thus and so, Jacob had his vision of the dream, the ladder going up to heaven, and he woke up and he said, surely the Lord is in this place, so he named the place Bethel, which meant house of God. And it it, it will say that throughout the scriptures, you see that in the Old Testament, they named, they'll make some proclamation, therefore they named the place, mm, and that name had significance meaning and when we're talking about it in the context of exodus and the name of god we're talking about the character and the bible talks about praying in jesus name when jesus said pray pray in my name that didn't mean tack his name onto the end of selfish prayers right it meant to pray in the character of christ pray with that same spirit and so when we come to revelation now we're talking not, not the name of god we're talking about here but the name of the beast we're talking about character as well. And where's the mark received? In the forehead. Then we contrast with the other group that the Bible brings to view here, and they also have a mark where? In their foreheads, and it contains what? The name of God. So follow the understanding here. And there are a lot of, you know, it's, some, it's somewhat epidemic in certain quarters of Adventism that Adventist young people get just enough information about the end times. It's like the end time survival kit. Let's see, Sunday law going to come, I'm going to say no, and I make it into heaven. And a lot of Adventist young people don't live up to what they know they should be living up to with the mindset that when I see the Sunday laws come, I'm going to get back to church, I'm going to start going to Sabbath school, I'm going to get caught up on my back tie, and I'm going to be ready for Jesus to come. But what they don't understand is that the issue at the end of time is determined by character. And character isn't built in a moment. That's why the parable of the ten virgins, that's what that parable tells us. The foolish virgins didn't have enough oil. And they went to the other virgins, you remember, and they said, hey, give us some of your oil. And the other virgins said, well, we can't, right? And you and I read that and we say, what kind of Christians are they? <laughs> and they asked for, they could, why didn't they help them out? But the point is this, that oil, that extra oil represented character, and you can't build character in a minute. When it comes to the, that end of time when the call is given, behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. It's too late to build character. Now's the time to build character. 
And the devil knows it better than anybody. And so he is constantly seeking to impress not God's character on you and me, but his character. And that conflict is continuing on. That's why we've got to guard the danger of thinking that truth is merely intellectual. One of the best examples in Scripture is the example of Peter. Peter knew what the test was going to be. Jesus told him. He said, They're going to, you're going to deny me. You're going to deny me three times, he said. And what happened? Peter said, Lord, I'm not going to deny you. Everybody else, they may, they may deny you. They may all forsake you, but I'll die for you. You think Peter meant what he said? I guarantee he did. I guarantee he did. He meant it with all his heart. He, maybe I should say he meant it with all his mind. Intellectually, he knew what he was supposed to do. Intellectually, he knew the right answer to give. The problem is he had not developed the character he needed, and when the trial came and he was pressured, his reputation gave way. He was worried too much about, about his character gave way, rather. He was worried too much about his reputation. And so when they said, you're one of them, he said, oh, I don't know the man. And there are going to be a lot of Adventist young people at the end of time who know up here the day to worship on, but they've never allowed Christ to develop in them his character. And when the test comes without the character, that character is going to determine the destiny. And that's what we see in this end-time conflict. So the devil has been seeking to undermine or deface the image of God. And that's what it tells us uh, in the book This Day with God, page 308. It says, determined to efface the image of God in man, Satan works with an intensity of effort to hide God from view. Not only does he, I'm sorry, not openly does he work, but secretly mingling the human with the divine, the spurious with the genuine. What is the spurious? The false, the, 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 the not genuine, the unauthentic, right? So here's, it tells us that the devil is working to efface the image of God in humanity. He wants to erase God's image. And he wants to put his own image there. And he's not working openly, but he's working secretly. When is he working? All the time. He's working all the time. This is why we talked, I've talked earlier about Christian culture. This is why we've got to be so aware of the fact the devil doesn't come to us and say, hey, I'm the devil, follow me. He mixes, it says, the human and the divine, the spurious and the genuine, and there's nothing more um, unsettling to me than when young people come and they say, well, I know that, I know that it's, it's, some of the stuff is wrong, but there's some good in it. Of course there's some good in it. If you were the devil, you wouldn't say, hey, here's a poison, drink up. You're going to mix the good and the bad. And that's what we're told here. He's mingling the human with the divine. He hides himself from view. And we say, well, I know that it isn't all good, but, you know, it's, it's like taking, as one pastor said, you, you eat the watermelon and you just spit out the seeds, right? And sometimes we have to do that. We take in certain things and we've got to take the good and leave the bad. But some of the things we partake of in this world are the devil's attempt to shape our characters. I'm going to tell you that our characters are shaped by our surroundings, by the things we watch, and there's things that happen all the time. He's always at work mixing the spurious and the genuine, the human and the divine, souls seeking to bring confusion and distress. But thank God it says in proportionate power, divine mercy 
is revealed to counteract this wicked working and bring to light the enemy's hidden purposes. And so God brings to light what the enemy's trying to do, and he tells us he's trying to shape you. Avoid him and let me shape you. And that's what's happening day by day. I want to tell you that a lot of, a lot of uh, Adventist young people get hung up on the do's and don'ts of Adventism. Oh, well, we're not allowed to do this. We're not allowed to do that. And, and I don't understand why we got all these rules. And little do they realize that the rules aren't there just to have rules. The reason God's asking us, for example, not to associate with the ungodly, the reason God's asking us not to partake of certain things is because God knows that those are all things that are going to shape our character and our character is going to determine what our final choice is going to be. I remember visiting with a young lady, a church member of mine in one of my churches, and uh, she was really into the soap operas. And... Um, we talked a little bit about it, and I said to her, you know, those things, the problem with the soap operas, as I said, when you watch how people deal with their problems on TV, unwittingly, you begin to deal with your problems the same way they deal with their problems. And I challenged her not to watch her soap opera for a week. One week. Went back the next week, and she said, Pastor, I can't believe how different I'm treating my husband just in a week. She said, I hadn't realized how I was treating him based on how I saw those women on TV treating their boyfriends or husbands or whatever. I'm telling you, listen, the devil knows how to shape us. And all the do's and don'ts that, that these restrictive measures we have in our church, they're not to restrict us. They're God trying to protect us from having the kind of character that's going to move us to receive the wrong mark at the end of time. Are you following what I'm saying? It's so key. In fact, I heard an interesting... Uh, how many of you get on Audioverse and listen to the sermons on Audioverse? Has anybody heard the sermon by Neil Nedley, um, Dr. Nedley, on... Oh, man, I need the name of it. I don't remember the name of it. Anyway, he was talking about how to, how to, how to increase your IQ or your, how to increase your capacity to learn and retain knowledge. Anyway, I saw that and I'm like, I got to get that one because I can use all I can get to retain what I need to retain. Anyway, it's a fascinating message, audioverse.org. It's free. Just get on there. Look up Neil Nedley. Look up that message. One of the things he brought up in the message is fascinating. Now, I, I'm going to say something here that I know this is out of fashion today, but Seventh-day Adventists, our world church belief is that Adventists don't use caffeine. Are you aware of that? It was in your baptismal vows at least in the world church's baptismal vows. I don't know if anybody cleared you on that. I just want to let you know that because a lot of young people seem to be unaware of that. We say, oh, it's so narrow-minded. Only it was interesting to me that Dr. Nedley brought up that some of the progressive NFL teams now are requiring their quarterbacks not to use any caffeine. Are you aware of that? Because of the effect it has on judgment. NFL, I'm not talking about Adventist NFL teams. Christian NFL team, we're just talking about, here's a quarterback going out, and, 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 and they're saying, hey, we need you to steer, steer clear of the caffeine because of the impairment uh, of the frontal lobe. They say within an hour of drinking caffeine, I don't know, a cup of coffee or something like that, you lose 40% of frontal lobe function. You know what happens in the frontal lobe? That's when you process morality. You think the devil doesn't have a hand in that? 
This is NFL teams. Why? Why? Because the quarterback is the one. Look, the receiver, and I'm not going to give you all the detail. Listen to the message by Dr. Nedley. It's fascinating. But the point is, the quarterback is the one who's directing everything, and he has to be clear and sharp in his thinking to win the game. We're not talking about a game here. We're talking about eternity. And so God has given certain standards for his people because he understands this shaping of character that the devil is working towards. And there are a lot of implications of this. Praise God, though, that Jesus, and I'm reading another statement now, Reflecting Christ, page 303, says, Jesus desires to efface the image of the earthly from the minds of his followers and to impress upon them the image of the heavenly, that they may become one with himself, reflecting his character. So as hard as the devil's working to impress us with his character, the Lord is seeking to impress us with his character. Now, one of the things I want to bring out, and you may say, what's this have to do with leadership? But uh, we're getting there. One of the things I want to bring out is one of the, you know, when you're talking about character, you're talking about the attributes of, um, ultimately of God and then what we emulate. The Bible says, by beholding, we become changed. Did you know that your understanding and view of God will determine how you act to other people? Um, Case in point, people who believe that God is a God who torments people for eternity in hellfire have a total different attitude on how to carry out justice than a person who understands that God doesn't torment people forever in hellfire. I mean, you can't do better than God, right? I mean, if God is doing it that way, if the God you worship does it that way, then guess what? You're doing pretty good to do like he does. And the fact of the matter is, the character attributes of the God we worship, they reflect upon us. It doesn't just work in that way. I mean, it works both ways. I mean, if you hang around friends that are a bad influence, sooner or later you begin to pick up their bad habits. It's just how things work. It's a principle of life, and it's a principle of worship. And so understanding God in his true character is key. And the devil knows that, and so in this effacing the image of, of God in man, one of the things he has to do is efface the understanding of the character of God in man. And one of the things Ellen White says that he attempted to do from the beginning of the controversy was to, in her words, divorce God's justice from his mercy. Now, I don't have time to get into all the detail of that. It's a fact, I'll tell you, read the chapter in Desire of Ages called... Um, It'll come to me in a moment. Hmm. It is finished is the name of the chapter. And it really fleshes this out. But the point is this. The devil, she says, is trying to separate God's justice from his mercy so that people will either view God as an all-just God with little mercy or an all-merciful God with little justice. And she gives a couple examples. Prior to the cross of Christ, the church viewed God as a God of justice. And that's why when Jesus came, woman caught in adultery, they wanted to stone her to death. Jesus wouldn't stone her to death. They couldn't understand that. They saw that Jesus was fighting against the justice of God because that woman deserved to be stoned. And in their mind, God was a God of justice, and so this woman needed that justice executed upon her. And that's, it was a one-sided view of the character of God. You see what I'm saying there? But then another example Ellen White gives in that chapter is after the cross of Christ, God demonstrated his mercy in sending his own son to die for the sins of humanity. So the devil switched his argument and he said, okay, well, here's where we're going to go now. Instead of the justice side, we're going to switch over to the mercy side and say God is so merciful that it's okay if you break his law. And that's where we are today. 
You've got multitudes of Christians who say, I mean, we're doing an evangelistic series right now in Michigan, and I had this couple. I'm, I'm so, I'm still befuddled by this. I'm totally amazed that we had this, we've had this older couple. They were coming out to the meetings every night. They're just totally on board, on board. And this guy, he's all about the Ten Commandments, okay? This evangelical guy, an older guy, he's coming in, and he's, he's even handing out literature to everybody about the importance of the Ten Commandments. He's telling me stories of people he's witnessed to about the Ten Commandments. And he's telling them, hey, he comes to me one night, and he says, you know what? I've been doing study on this, and I can't believe how many places in the Bible it tells us about keeping the Ten Commandments. You know, it says in the book of John, if you love me, keep my commandments. I say, you don't say, you know? And he's sharing all of this. He's just all fired up about the importance. I'm telling my friends, he said, and, and they've got the Ten Commandments plaques up in their attic, and they're realizing, hey, we ought to be upholding the Ten Commandments. So they're bringing the plaque down out of their attics, and they're putting it back on the wall in their family rooms and foyers and whatever else. So he's all about the Ten Commandments. And I'm thinking to myself, this will be interesting when we get to the Sabbath, right? Because, hey, if you're all about the Ten Commandments, once you find out the Fourth Commandment is to keep the Sabbath day holy, the seventh day, let's see what happens there. Unbelievable switch. Unbelievable. Um, we get to the Sabbath presentation, and then the, all of a sudden it's like, well, um, you know, does God really care which day we keep? Well, it's right there in the Bible. It's, yeah, I know, but, well, you know, which day does God say? Well, but we've always viewed, I said, I know you've always viewed it that way, but this is the day God says. Which day is God viewed as the Sabbath day? And total switch. And these people that were all about the Ten Commandments just cannot understand why God would care and why he would be that particular that he want you to observe the Sabbath day. You know, let's see, when did you start determining your own religion? I mean, it used to be about the Bible and what God said, and even just a few nights ago in this meeting it was about, but suddenly things shift, and I'm just telling you, this is one of the ways the devil has come in today. He says, now, not God is so just, but God is so merciful. God loves us so much that he really isn't that particular if we disobey. Now, something that says about God's character is this. It says that there really never was a true consequence to sin. It was just an arbitrary um, law that God made up. In other words, God, made, God said, you've got to do this or else because he's God, not because there was any real cause and effect. That's the implication. Let me ask you a question. Is there a really a cause and, is there a cause and effect in the mind and heart of man when he disobeys God? Yeah. What I mean is a consequence. I don't mean a punishment. I'm not talking about a punishment. Does it affect me when I disobey God? Does it affect my character? Yes or no? To say that, well, God's so loving, he'll overlook it, is to say it really doesn't affect my character. The only reason God ever made the rules is because he wanted to, but there's really no consequence. But that's not reality. And so the devil has worked very ingeniously in trying to pit God's character attributes. Now, Ellen White makes a comment on the mercy of Christ. And this is in uh, Bible Commentary, SDA Bible Commentary, Volume 7, and it's a compilation of her statements on the atonement. And it's on page 935 and 936, and this is what she says. She says, his object, Christ's object, was to reconcile the prerogatives of justice and mercy. Let me say one other thing about justice and mercy. This is typically where we find the whole liberal conservative argument in all reality. 
Typically, and I'm just using cliches here, there are variations, but typically a person who's classified as liberal tends to emphasize what side of God's character? The mercy side. And the conservative tends to emphasize, and again, this is a generalization, but tends to emphasize the justice side. And let me tell you something. The devil doesn't care which ditch you're in as long as you're in a ditch. Christ came to reconcile the prerogatives of justice and mercy. God is both just and merciful in all that he does. He's not one or the other. God can be just and merciful at the same time. And so the devil loves us to pit ourselves against each other versus, um, and don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, sometimes when we say, when we talk about conservative, somebody would ask me call me a Christian, they'd call me conservative, and for the most part, because a conservative Christian is typically described as one who takes the Bible literally and believes we ought to follow it. And yes, I do. But there are other things that come into that, and I just want to emphasize the point that sometimes we can get caught up on, on, on different polar sides of something that ought to be brought together that Jesus himself had come to reconcile. His object was to reconcile the prerogatives of justice and mercy and let each stand separate in its dignity, yet united. His mercy, speaking about Christ's mercy, was not weakness. Now, I don't know, probably, this probably applies more to guys than girls, that when a guy wants to be known as something, typically the first thing is not merciful. But maybe I'll use a different word beside merciful, because merciful is not all that bad. But if you're a guy and you want, and you've got some girl, that, let's say you've got some girl you're interested in, and the first way, or, or I don't know, I'll keep with that example. The first way she describes you as meek, how does that make you feel? As a guy, does she, does she not like me? She must just like me as a friend. You know, I mean, in other words, meek is just not one of those characteristics as a guy. You're thinking, yeah, well, that could be like third or fourth. I don't mind being meek, but could I be like courageous first, you know? Is there some truth to that, guys? Well, in our mind, we don't think of mercy necessarily as a positive character. Well, not that it's not a positive characteristic. But I want you to notice, we tend to think of it as weakness. And that's where she says here in Christ, Christ's mercy was not weakness. And, I, and part of that is just a tendency of our generation and media and the light it casts on that. But the fact is, mercy is not weakness. Mercy is one of, is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, strengths in the universe. It's because of God's mercy that uh, we even have, have life. And his mercy has preserved the integrity of the universe. Now listen, she says, his mercy was not weakness, but a terrible power to punish sin because it is sin. Now you don't think of mercy as a power to punish sin. But let me ask you, would it be merciful for God to know sin exists and not punish it? Would that be merciful? No, sin is destroying the universe. If God's a merciful God, he's got to destroy sin. So it's a different way of thinking here. Jesus came, and the reason it's a different way of thinking is because the devil has so long tried to separate justice and mercy in the minds of his people. So Jesus came to, to, to reconcile those prerogatives. His mercy was not a weakness, but a terrible power to punish sin because it is sin, yet a power to draw to it the love of the sinner. So he could come to that woman caught in adultery. He could tell her to go and sin no more, and yet she could see in him somebody who desired her salvation. He could talk to the woman at the well very plainly about her live-in boyfriend, 
and yet she was excited because she felt she had met the Messiah. You understand what I'm saying? The, recon- the, the prerogatives of justice and mercy were seen reconciled in the character of Christ. Now, why is this important in the terms and concepts of leadership? Here's why, and this is what I want to spend uh, the remainder of time just kind of amplifying this a little bit. We become like the God we behold. And if I were to ask you, you become a Christian, you enter into the Christian life, describe to me the attributes of the Christian life. You become a Christian, what are the characteristics now that you must possess, that people should possess as a Christian? Love, what is that? Prior to that, meekness, meekness, love, self-control, a little louder, faith, the character attributes of a Christian. What are the things that you, that begin to happen in your life? When you become a Christian, what are the things that you know need to happen? What a Christian is going to be like this, love, meekness, faith, humility, patience, faithfulness, honest. Okay, those are good. Those are, I mean, those are all really good. Ellen White calls those attributes the passive virtues. I want you to listen to this statement from the book Gospel Workers, page 290. It says, Christian life is more than many take it to be. It does not consist wholly, that's W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely, in gentleness, patience, meekness, and kindliness. These graces are essential. Amen? We want gentleness. We want meekness. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know when I became a Christian, I had to learn meekness. I had to learn humility. I had to become more gentle, less volatile. But listen, but there is need also of courage, force, energy, and perseverance. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Those things don't typically come to our mind right away when we're Christians, when we become Christians. In fact, we often think of those attributes as some kind of special attributes given to an elite few. Like we're all to become meek, but we're not all to be persevering and courageous. And and, and what are are the other words there that she used? Um, Having force and energy. And, and I'm, I'm afraid that a lot of that comes from the fact that we can tend to portray Christ often in a very one-sided way. We talk about his meekness. We talk about his gentleness. And when, and, and when we see situations like him driving out the money changers, we kind of brush that aside because we want to talk about his love and his mercy, but the fact of the matter is, Jesus, if Jesus didn't have the force of character that he had, he never would have made it through six months of his ministry. Isn't that right? He met constant opposition, and then you read the scripture, they tried to physically take him and haul him and throw him over a cliff one time. They were trying to kill the man. 
Now, when they're trying to keep, they're trying, so if you had a group of mama people come and try to take you and throw you over a cliff, would you go back to their town? You'd be like, okay, I think I'll avoid that place. And you see it in his followers too, right? The Apostle Paul, they beat him, they stone him, leave him for dead. And what's he do? Oh, he's not dead. He gets up and he goes back into the city, right? Whoa, wait a minute. They just left you for dead. Get out of here while you got the chance. But I'm afraid that sometimes we get this one-sided image of Jesus. And, and what happens is, as we are seeking to emulate Christ, which we should, because we only see the passive side of things, too few people in the church are emulating those qualities that would make strong leaders in the church. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And young ladies, don't think these are just male qualities here. Because we're talking about Jesus and we're talking about, and I use some male examples, but the women in the Adventist church today need courage. They need perseverance and energy. Isn't that right? Listen, we're giving a truth that the devil doesn't want the world to hear. He's not content to just sit down while we're witnessing for Christ. I mean, what do you think happens? You're going to go out and witness for Christ and the devil's going to say, well, I guess my hands are tied here. I guess there's nothing I can do. No, he's going to fight you with everything he has. And this is what Ellen White goes on to say in Gospel Workers. She said, some who engage in missionary service are weak, nerveless, spiritless, easily discouraged. How many of you have done literature work or Bible work or knocking on doors? Can that get discouraging? What happens if, you, if all you have is meekness and kindness? and You get discouraged. You've got to have a little bit of push. You've got to have a little courage. You've got to have a little fortitude, don't you? When you're getting into missionary work. I mean, that's what she's talking about here. Some people who engage in missionary work, they're weak, they're nerveless, they're spiritless. She says they lack push. They have not those positive traits of character that give power to do something. The spirit and energy that kindle enthusiasm. What does it mean to kindle something? Lighting a fire, right? She says those people who have the energy and that perseverance and that force of character... They light people on fire. Have you ever met somebody who had a fire for the Lord and it just kind of made you catch fire too? You got around and just like, yeah, I need to be more about the work of the Lord. Have you had that happen? This is what it's talking about. The spirit and energy that kindle enthusiasm. Those who would win success must be courageous and hopeful. Now listen to the next sentence. They should cultivate not only the passive, but the active virtues. Cultivate. What does that word cultivate mean? Anybody here do any gardening? Anybody do any gardening work here? Anybody ever have a garden? Growing up, you have a garden, you do anything here agricultural? Cultivating includes what? What's the, what's the part of cultivating you like least? I, can, I know what part I like least, and I'm thinking you probably like the same part least. 
Weeding. Watering, not so bad. Feeding, not so bad. Weeding, forget it. I remember growing up and having our garden, my mom and dad, we all, my brothers and I, we all had our rows that we had to weed. Oh, I hated to weed. It's so time-consuming and hot and bugs and labor-intensive, but cultivating is work. Why do you weed? Why do you water? Why do you fertilize? What's that? To help whatever you're growing to grow. Ellen White says here, we are to cultivate not only the passive, but the active virtues. Passive virtues, the kindliness, the meekness, the gentleness. Do we need to cultivate those? Do we need to work on them? Have you ever had to work on being forgiving? Anybody ever have some kind of conflict or with somebody and you say, oh, I know, i got to really go to them and apologize and just... Mm. Have you ever had to kind of wrestle through that? Yeah, you've got to cultivate that because it's not natural for us. When we come to Christ, His Spirit comes in us and He directs us. You know, we're born again, but we're born as babies. We're not born as adults. Babies don't... As it's already been brought up in... in the meeting uh, the other night, I think it was last night, I mean, babies, human babies don't get born walking. They're barely able to crawl after nine months. Some longer than that. When you're born again, that's just the beginning of your Christian experience, right? And then the Lord begins to teach you and you cultivate. But we're not, not only to cultivate the, pa- the uh, passive virtues, but it says here we're to cultivate the active virtues. And I would dare say that most of us spend more time, if we're cultivating anything in our Christian life, cultivating the passive virtues. When it comes to the active virtues, that force of character, that perseverance, that, 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 those characteristics that have me get out and do something that I don't really want to do. When somebody's going out and knocking on doors, and I'm like, that's just not me. But I'll go, because I want to cultivate The active virtues, I'm afraid that doesn't happen as much. When I'm asked to help out and lead in something, and one of the things I didn't bring up earlier, oftentimes when churches are nominating for officers in the church, it's not uncommon. I've sat on too many nominating committees to call people up and, 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 oh, pastor, I don't know, I've just got too many things going on. They don't realize, and I want to clue you in on this, when a nominating committee calls you and offers you a position, that's God offering you a position. God works through his church. That's how he works. God's the one that organized the church. We didn't organize it. You know, and I'm not saying a nominating committee is flawless, but what often happens is I'll have somebody say, well, pastor, I can help out, but I don't want to be the leader. A lot of times we just, we don't, we're not, that's not cultivating active virtues. God needs people that are going to, that are going to work on those, those qualities, those characteristics that will help them to step up and lead out and be those strong examples that kindle enthusiasm. One of my favorite statements, I'll let you guess the chapter of the book that it's in. Somebody ought to get it by now. Where am I going to quote from? You got it, the life work, education. Ellen White talks about how the Lord trains us in working for him. And she makes this statement, and don't forget this. She says it is in, she says the, 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 and I, the first part I'm going to butcher up here. She says the, the um, something to the effect of the, the skill or the, or, or the uh, I'll just use the word skill, to do the work is gained in the work itself. And then she makes the statement, it is in the water and not on land 
that men learn to swim. Now imagine you take a class and somebody's talking to you about all the strokes that you would do in the water. How much are you really going to get out of that until you get in the water? Not much. It's in the water, not on the land, that men learn to swim. And she says that in the context of learning these leadership skills and cultivating these active virtues. You don't cultivate the active virtues in a classroom. You cultivate the active virtues when you take those risks that God calls you to take and you step up when those opportunities show themselves or you even step into opportunities and volunteer yourself when you don't feel like doing it. And when you say, I don't know how, I'm going to tell you you'll never know how until you step into them. Case in point, I had a young couple in uh, one of our Emanuel Institute sessions. We had follow-up Bible studies to give after the class session was over. And one of our students had a sister who lived in the area. And so he gave off his, one of his studies to his sister. She said, I'll go out and we'll, my husband and I'll give that study. Young couple, 20, in their early 20s, 21, 22, they go to give the study. And, uh, and I coached them a little bit. They'd ask me what we should study, and I'd go over the Bible study they were going to give. And I'll never forget the time this young wife comes to me, and she says, Pastor, we can't do it anymore. I said, what do you mean? She says, well, I'm not cut out for this. What do you mean you're not cut out for it? She said, I'm just not cut out. This is not, this is not me. Explain to me what you're talking about. She says, they're asking me questions I don't know the answer to. So I asked her, I said, you know, they gave a study on the law, and they asked a question she didn't know the answer to. I said, let me ask you this question. How long have you been in the Adventist church? She said, oh, my whole life. You were raised in the church, you go to Adventist schools? Yeah. And you sit in the Adventist church week after week, sitting through sermons? Yeah. I said, how long have you known that you didn't know this thing that they asked? Why didn't, she said. So I said, you've been sitting in the Adventist church pew for over 20 years, and you never knew what you don't know until you went to this Bible study and found out that you don't know what you now know you don't know because you went to the Bible study. No, did you, get, did you understand that? Let me try that again. I said, you've been in the church your whole life, and you just found out that all these years you didn't know the answer to this question that you just found out you didn't know because you went to this Bible study. She said, yeah, I guess you're right. I said, maybe the Lord gave you a Bible study so you could find out what you don't know so you could learn it. I'm going to tell you something. A lot of us don't have a clue what we don't know. We say we don't know enough. When, when are you going to get to know it? I mean, 20 years in the church. I know people have been 30 years in the church, 40 years in the church. They still don't know. When are you going to, when are you going to learn it? Not until you get in the water. Right? It's in the water, not on land. You're not going to learn how to swim as you're standing on the side talking about it. We've got to cultivate the active virtues. I'm going to tell you something. The opportunities are plenty, and God is wanting to move on you young people to say, and for those of you who are a little older than young people, there's not a one of us that's excluded. We need to cultivate not just the passive, but the active virtues. Friends, we're, we're at a time in Earth's history where everything that we know, life as we know it, is about to change into something that we've only read in books. We're heading into times, I don't want to frighten you, because the fact of the matter is, we read about persecution and all of these things. Yeah, it's going to happen again. But Ellen White tells us this. When we see the persecutions of the past that begin to be uh, 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 revived, 
She said, we're going to see the glory of God revived. And she said, angels of God are going to become the constant companions of, of the people living on planet Earth at that time. And we will have direct communion with the angels of God through those times ahead. Lest you get too overly worked up about it, God does not leave his people and forsake them in the battle, okay? But we've got to prepare for that time by taking seriously cultivating these active virtues. She says they should cultivate not only the passive but active virtues. While they are to give the soft answer that turns away wrath, they must possess the courage of a hero to resist evil. With the charity that endures all things, they need the force of character that will make their influence a positive power. And maybe I should finish up just a few thoughts here. First of all, when we're talking about influence, and I've already made the point, maybe not in this session, that we all have an influence. Young people, too many times in God's church today, issues take place and, and, and we sit silent when we should speak out. When Elijah stood on Mount Carmel and he called out, if Jehovah is God, worship him. But if Baal is God, worship him. And I think he said it in the reverse order. If Baal is God, worship him. If Jehovah's worship him, but make up your mind. The Bible says the people answered him not a word. Our church today is too much like that. We want somebody else to be the one who answers. When we know we ought to be speaking up. When we know we ought to be standing up. We need that, those active virtues. We need people of courage in these last days. We need young people who are willing to stand up and have a voice and use their voice for the cause of God, even if the whole rest of the cause is against them, or the whole rest of the world, rather, and the rest of the church may be against them. Even if your friends are standing against you, when you know what's right, you need to be willing to stand up for what's right, because I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. If we capitulate now, the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 12 and verse 5, if you can't run with the footman, how are you going to contend with the men on horseback? The point he's making is this. Um, if we can't stand up now for what we know is right because we're afraid our friends are going to make fun of us or give us a hard time, what makes us think we're going to stand up for what's right when they're threatening our life? Is God our friend now? Is what? If we love our friends more than God. Yeah. Yeah, that's a way of looking at it. I mean, what are we putting before the Lord? Look, we have, a, we have an obligation to God. And I say obligation, I use the term loosely. I mean, we ought to have uh, the, 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 the sacrifice of Christ ought to compel us to forsake everything for him. I mean, there's nothing we're going to give up for God that he hasn't given up for us. And in anything we give, we gain infinitely more. But God needs people who are going to take action and be those people, those, those people of action, those people of courage, those people of... of uh, uh, that, that spirit that kindles enthusiasm in these last days. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer. Anybody familiar with that story? I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but simply to make this point. When you read that story in Scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 13, 14. The Philistines are coming against Israel. They've got them under tribute. And Jonathan, the son of Saul, the king, thinks to himself, why in the world are we paying tribute to the Philistines when we're God's chosen people? So Jonathan decides he's going to do something about it. Now keep in mind, he's one guy. 
And Jonathan attacks, he takes his soldiers and he attacks one of the garrisons of the Philistines. Well, then everybody's in an uproar. The Philistines get mad and they're going to wipe out Israel. They're making plans to wipe out Israel and the Israelites panic and flee. You've got people deserting the army. You've got people defecting over to, uh, to, to give themselves over into the hands of the enemies because they're better to do that than to be wiped out. I mean, this is the mindset you see in Israel. And it's during this time period, the Bible says, Jonathan turns to his armor bearer. And keep in mind, the guy's an armor bearer because he's not qualified to be a soldier. And the Bible goes on to tell us that they don't have any swords in the whole camp of Israel, but one with Jonathan and one with Saul. So Jonathan does have a sword. He doesn't have an army, and the Bible says he looks to his armor bearer and he says, why don't we go over against these Philistines and see what God will do? Now, I'll tell you, I don't have time to give in, get into all the story, but only to say that's the kind of courage God needs in his people today. Jonathan had no guarantee of success other than he believed in God, and he went and he did the impossible. And I'm going to tell you, you look at the battles in the Bible, and God's people always face the impossible. You take Gideon's army, and what happens? Gideon started with how many people, do you know? He started with 32,000 men. And, he, and, and the enemy had over 130,000 men. 32,000 against 130 plus thousand. Doesn't look good, does it? But Gideon said, I'm going to go because I'm your man, God. So he goes to battle and God says, Gideon, you got too many guys. You remember the story? So he has him make the first cut. You remember what he ended up with after the first cut? Told everybody who's faint-hearted to go home. You know how many people stayed? 10,000. 32,000, 22,000 left. 10,000 against 130 plus thousand people. Midianites, right? And so Gideon comes back trembling and says, okay, Lord, we only got 10,000 now, but we'll do it by faith. And God says, Gideon, you got too many guys. Put yourself there. Too many guys? So he makes the second cut, and what's he end up with? 300. And he wins the battle with 300. Why does God cut it down to 300? Because God wanted them to know that the battle didn't come through their power, but his power. Isn't that right? God needs a generation of young people who believe that he has the power to win. And who will have the courage to act on that power when it comes to standing up for what's right and when they do that, you go back to the story of Jonathan, you'll find that as Jonathan went against the Philistines, that one guy inspired, he was so full of zeal for God that he inspired faith in the armor bearer. And the armor bearer said, hey, Jonathan, whatever you do, I'm with you in it. And they went and they began to wipe out the Philistines. The whole army was on a retreat because God moved through the army. The Philistines are fleeing and the rest of the Israelites see it. And the ones who defected begin to come back in. And long and short of the story, God inspired the whole nation of Israel because one man was willing to take God at his word, to act in faith, and to step out in the cause of God. And Ellen White tells us that churches are revived when some individual catches that spirit and goes forward and works and puts their trust in God. The whole church can be revived. Are you willing to be that one person? How many of you willing to be the person who's going to say, Lord, I'm going to stand up for you. I'm going to cultivate not just the passive virtues, but the active virtues. And Lord, as I'm sitting here today, and listen to me carefully, this is a commitment I'm asking you if you're willing to make. As you're sitting here, you can say, Lord, as I'm sitting here today, I don't know what you're going to ask me to do in the future, but 
wherever you, whatever you ask me to do, whatever door you open for me, whatever opportunity presents itself, here and now, I want to commit myself to saying, I'm going to go, I'll do it. You know that's dangerous, right? Because if you say, well, okay, I'm going to, yes, you know what's going to happen. The Lord's going to open a door, and it might not have been the door you wanted, but I'm going to tell you it's the door you need. And when you walk through that door that God has intended for you to go through, you'll never regret it. You'll be able to impact the world with the gospel of Christ and save your own soul. Well, you don't understand the Lord saves your soul, but by your choice, you put yourself on the side of God's cause. So how many of you want to say, Lord, I'll go where you want me to go. Is that your desire today? Let me see your hands. Let's bow our heads together. Father in heaven, Father, we are in the midst of a controversy, and we know the enemy, he is constantly seeking to change, to manipulate, to erase and efface the image of God in your people. Father, for far too long, we have been inundated with concepts and ideologies and images that would shape our characters in the wrong direction. And you have sought through your truth the truths of your word, the truths of your prophet, to lead us in a direction that would fit us with characters for heaven. That would help us to stand at the end of time. And Lord, as we are looking now today, we're thinking about and considering these things in a very practical way. As we consider the importance of cultivating in our lives the active Christian virtues, I pray I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to take those responsibilities upon ourselves that would help us to grow spiritually and develop our characters in an all-round way. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to commit ourselves to those opportunities that present themselves to us in your service. And even now, Lord, you have certain goals and plans for these young people that they haven't even been introduced to yet. But you've seen the response. Lord, we know that Jesus is coming soon. We want to be a part of hastening the day of his coming and heralding the day of his coming. I want to pray that you would bless us to that end today. Bless this campus Bless these students in their personal spiritual lives and help them daily to grow more and more like Jesus. Father, we ask and pray it in his name and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.